Hello and welcome to History Respawned. I'm your host, John Harney. Today we are looking at the latest Total War game from Creative Assembly, Total War Three Kingdoms. Three Kingdoms is set in late 2nd century and early to mid 3rd century China, an era known for the final decline of the great Han dynasty and the political shifts that followed. The period is a frequent theme in East Asian popular culture and inspired Luo Guanzong's Romance of the Three Kingdoms, one of the most famous novels in Chinese literature dating back to the early 16th century. With me to discuss the game is Maggie Green. Maggie is Assistant Professor of Modern Chinese History and East Asian Cultural History at Montana State and the author of Resisting Spirits, Drama Reform and Cultural Transformation in the People's Republic of China, available later this summer. Maggie was actually the first person I thought of as I was playing Total War Three Kingdoms, and I'm really happy she's available to do it. Maggie, thanks a million for being here today. Well, thank you for inviting me on. No, it's great to have you. You know, a big part of the reason um, I was kind of interested in having you on wasn't just your professional um wasn't just your area of scholarly expertise, which we're going to get to shortly, but that you're no stranger to games. In fact, you've written about games, video games and beyond. So I have been playing video games. I guess I had a I had Game Boy when I was really little, but I didn't really sort of start really playing games until I was in high school and then college. Um, and I absolutely fell in love with Final Fantasy X. That was actually my first game that I remember being really crazy about. Um, and between college and grad school, I actually started writing for the the new site Kotaku. Um, I was a weekend editor and that's actually what introduced me. I had no idea that people actually studied video games academically. <laughs> um, and that's what introduced me to um, the world of game studies, which was really exciting. So I got to write and be involved, I suppose, in some sort of professional aspect. And then after I left Kotaku, of course, I was still in grad school, but I, I was still going to game studies conferences. And so um, I really got interested in sort of the academic side of thinking about games. So like you mentioned, um, I've done work on Mahjong. That is my only published academic anything on games but i'm hoping my next book project is actually going to be dealing with stuff like the early 2000s final fantasy 7 demake uh hmm. for nes that came out in china um and and other sort of sort of related game issues and in terms of what i do now i mostly play final fantasy 14 for anyone that follows me on twitter or instagram my feeds are basically my pictures of my dog talking about my book and screenshots from Final <laughs> Fantasy XIV. So um, I still play games, obviously. I don't play this kind of game, uh, but it's a pretty big part of my life in a lot of ways. So I think, you know, dog pics and, 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 and MMO kind of content, that's good, solid Twitter follow, I think. It's good stuff. I, I think so. I think yeah. so. I have yeah. way more Twitter followers than anyone else in my department. I probably have more than the rest of them put together. So <laughs> I'm doing something right. Indeed. So, yeah, Total War Three Kingdoms is, well, the Total War series is this very kind of long running series. And I'll come out and just say it. I get a little bit nervous with games like this on History Respawn because people who are into these games are really into them. Um, and for those of you watching and listening, I love you and I'm glad you're here. That's not meant as a, in a bad way. It's just meant that, you know, for example, if this video episode includes footage of my attempts to take the city of Luoyang, it's going to be, uh, you know, people who actually know how these games work will be horrified. So you have to, you have to bear with us. Because we're, we're really interested in the context. And of course, the context of the game is all about, um, well, the, the Three Kingdoms period. 
which is kind of a, a broad way uh, to say it. So, Maggie, as our as our expert guest today, uh, would you mind sharing with the audience a little bit uh, what is what is this context, this Three Kingdoms context, and not even just you know the historical reality of late twentieth century China, you know, the very end of the Han, but also you know, this is this is a period in Chinese history which has really lent itself to a lot of stylistic and thematic interpretation over the centuries. Um, yes. and so you'd be you're you're more than welcome to get into that in a big way too. So um as you mentioned, uh this this period of course is the basis for one of the major one of the four, you know, vernacular novels of classical Chinese literature, Sangguo Yanyi, um, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which has provided so much fodder for not just Chinese um, adaptation, but in East Asia more broadly, as mm-hmm. well as, of course, as we can see, uh, even into the West. Um, but this has proved, I think, like other kind of relatively traumatic periods of Chinese history. Um, in my own research, it's actually the late... Southern Song Dynasty, which has some sort of similar issues going on. You know, there's a lot of turmoil. Um, you've got things sort of breaking apart. Uh, the society is not what it should be. Um, and it's proved to be really rich fodder for cultural workers, you know, throughout the ages. Um, oh, I shouldn't call them that. That's a very, that's a very socialist term, isn't it? Um, <laughs> okay. But regardless, um, for for writers and artists in particular, and Romance of the Three Kingdoms is something that continues to uh, really capture people's imaginations. Um, it's something that I actually don't know that much about. I, I will shamefacedly admit I've never actually read Romance of the Three Kingdoms, um, but it is the way that it appears in literature and in theater and gets excerpted and all these characters that are larger than life um, have been really embedded, I think, into cultural memory. Like, even though I've never read Romance of the Three Kingdoms, like, I know enough to be like, oh, yeah, it's Cao Cao or Liu Bei or whoever. Like, the names, I'm like, oh, yeah, that person did something. And I have a vague idea about the kind of person that they were or the ways in which they've been presented if right. that makes any sense no definitely i was just going to say like you know if you send any time uh in east asia and even in parts of southeast asia with large chinese communities like if you're watching tv in malaysia or the philippines and stuff like that you don't even have to read the book to have a rough idea who the main cast members <laughs> right, are you know right. zuka liang and all this kind of stuff and um, right or, or yeah. the, the battle of red cliff like, right I, right you know you're like oh yeah it should be yes okay like i Something happened there. It was a battle near a red cliff. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's so much a part of like even just ignoring the book itself and various adaptations. Like those stories have just really embedded themselves um, in a lot of ways. Like even just in the way that, yeah, people talk right. about certain issues, which is pretty interesting. Right. And and so, you know, it's such an interesting idea, of course, because it's it, it's so densely kind of packed with, you know, it opens with, you know, the Han dynasty still exists, the Han Empire, but it's, you know, its days are numbered. And of course, we, the audience, know uh, the days are extremely numbered and about to go. And the Han, you know, I tell my students, you know, this is, you know, way back when the, you know, well, not that far back, maybe a century ago, you had Western historians who'd openly compare the Han to the Roman Empire and stuff like this, right? It's like that. Like I, I feel like 
isn't this kind of story almost about like the loss of something special as much as anything else? Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I actually um, also skip over the Han in my teaching when I have to do pre-modern. Yeah, I tend to be very much like, okay, we're going to talk about Confucius. Now moving forward to the Tang Dynasty. Some stuff happened. Don't worry about it. China was unified. Oh, moving through. Oh, well, I teach world history and and people who listen to the podcast regularly will know because I bring it up all the time. And when you teach world history, it's like, okay, we're doing China today, guys. And uh, there's these five dynasties. Here they are. (laughs) (laughs) These are the five that I I... would uh, take note of. And Han is the first one, you know, and in the game and in in the kind of the the period. So, you know, it's the end of the Han and the game, I think, conveys fairly well. You know, this is this has been a stable government for a long time or for, you know, a long time. You know, the Han had lasted, although... Actual hand scholars would come and spank me for saying this, but you know, it lasts about four hundred years. There's lots of sub periods. It was a good long run. It, it was, was a good, good run. run. Um, and it was a good long run. <laughs> and the game and the kind of the years that follow are sometimes called the period of division and all this kind of stuff. And so you have kind of, you know, it's it's so the early third century. Uh, is when you know the Han kind of definitely kind of disappears, and then you have the Tang kind of emerge uh, in the very very early seventh. You know, immediately preceded by yep. another one. And I'm trying. I'm sorry, audience. I'm trying not to become a super super China nerd um, while, dis- <laughs> while disguising my shameless lack of knowledge about Imperial Chinese history. So so there's there's really kind of a, this is the fall of something dramatic, and you know the intro cinematic to the game. Oh, the tyrannical Dong Zhuo, and there's this very clear. Um, you know, uh, this was a good government and it's being brought down by weak men and self-interest. And a big baddie. And a big baddie, right. Right, but that feeds into the themes you were talking about Confucianism a minute ago. Like, this is real... All this stuff goes together, right? These Confucian... Like, would you... Especially people who have, like, close to no idea... You and I are kind of talking here, oh, of course Confucian principles are involved in this, but but how are they, you know? (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, if, if we're thinking about, I mean, so one thing that I always have to remind my students, and one reason that I always, always, no matter what class I'm teaching, um, I always at least have my sort of, like, one week, like, everything you need to know about East Asia. <laughs> right, um, right. Intro to stuff, well, and it's obviously not everything that they need to know, but it's, like, East Asia 101. Um, but I do <laughs> always have Confucianism 101, because I think one thing that people easily forget in the West, partially because of the way that Confucianism is talked about. But Confucianism is, above all other things, okay, we we can talk about Neo-Confucianism and the Song Dynasty uh, later, I suppose, but it's it's a it's a it's a ruling technology, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's yeah. all about how do we make sense of this world that in Confucius's era and at the end of the Han Dynasty and at various periods in Chinese history is actually quite chaotic. Um, and of course, in Confucianism, the idea is that the, the ruler himself needs to be principled and doing everything that he needs to be doing in a good moral sense um that should be reflected in his relationships to his ministers but that that kind of relationship should also be reflected in things like the family you know on an on an individual level so the idea that any moral failings of leaders or want to be leaders is of course going to you know impact whatever's going on um in terms of, you know, how the country is functioning. 
uh, is really, really important. And especially when you combine that with the mandate of heaven, right? So the idea that the mandate of heaven basically says that, um, yes, the, the ruler has some sort of divine blessing, I suppose, in a sense, but they can lose that. So if like everything is going wrong, that clearly means that the leader has lost the mandate of heaven. You know, I compare it, most of my students when they think about um, monarchies and emperors and stuff, they, they think about, you know, Europe circa the 15th century or something right, and divine right, exactly. right of kings. Mm -hmm. And the mandate of heaven is different, though, that that idea underpinning Chinese dynasties is, I think, functionally quite different because if things are really going wrong, that means that you as a leader have clearly screwed up and that opens the door for somebody else to come in and then claim the mandate. And I tell my students this, I tell my students this all the time, and I, I go back to Tiananmen in 1989, which of course is a spectacularly uh, present day uh, example for yes. present day 20 yes. year olds who have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, but but it's, it's amazing how, how saturated or how, pen how penetrated into the Western consciousness has become this idea of the hierarchies of Confucianism, you know, and this mm -hmm. idea that the individual must uh, sacrifice oneself to the ideas of the group, which, you know, is the kind of thing that uh, East Asian uh, people will often tell foreign visitors, almost as a way of being polite <laughs> and remind them how we care about the group. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, the mandate of heaven allows, it opens the door uh, for rebellions to be to be rendered plot or rendered uh, legitimate, even if some of the legitimization maybe comes later on after they've established the next right. dynasty. That that happened a little bit too. <laughs> right, of course. Well, and this is one of the interesting things about the Three Kingdoms period, right? And you know, when you were talking about the characterization, um, you know, when we were setting this up in your email about various characters, um, you know, how do we know that Salta was this kind of dude like we right. it's embedded that he was a certain kind of guy and a certain kind of leader but where is all that coming from it's and to be clear i am not a historian that fetishizes like archival anything um and i understand that any kind of history that's being written is being filtered through all sorts of lenses but it is worth keeping in mind that a lot of our sources for this stuff are later even if we're not talking about um, you know, the, the novel itself, but even just dynastic histories, which are amazing, you know, I mean, they're amazing. Who else, what, what other scholars get to be like, and here we have these like giant books that were written about the entire history of whatever period we were looking at, like not that long after, but they were written after and they were written with an agenda. And often that agenda is going back to proving that, somebody at the end of the previous dynasty screwed up and lost the mandate of heaven, which th thus legitimizes the people who are actually writing the history. It's, it's, it's a really interesting cycle, but it's one that I think really impacts um, even just popular, you know, popular culture and the way that people are being presented. Yeah, that's a great point. And I'm in danger of taking like our fifth tangent in a row, but I'm going to anyway. Um, <laughs> 
because this 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 connection between kind of the scholarly record and power is such a fascinating one in Chinese history. And I think, and I'll come back to this in a minute, I think it lends itself to a total war game quite well. When I think of like the classic example, or one of the many classic examples, I suppose, is Yong Le, right? Early in the, uh, in, in the Ming Dynasty. Um, who for yes. people who people who don't know basically turns to the the most um, the foremost scholar uh, at the time and says, "No, you write the history, saying what a wonderful guy I am." And he says, "Well, you kind of murdered family members to get here. I don't want to do that." <laughs> and uh, and and that wasn't the right thing to say to Young Le because he reacted pretty <laughs> no, aggressively. No. Yeah, no, it definitely wasn't. <laughs> so so this is so that that's a really interesting dynamic that's going all the way through. And you know, the Total War series is kind of is an interesting series that way. I think it's always been very, um, I think they've always been fairly conscientious or they've really put some thought into the history and how they interact with it. Even if one of the most popular games to date is actually from the Warhammer universe, but they actually applied the similar principles, you know, to that. So in Total War Three Kingdoms, it's quite interesting. So Cao Cao, who's actually presented to you as quote unquote the easy campaign so it's basically prodding you towards him just use this guy first you know so if you're you know like, like get, you learn the ropes with this guy um, so you're going to be spending time with him he's very wily and, and very diplomatic and even as a resource he, you can use that, that refills slowly over time to incite proxy wars and kind of turn people against each other and everything else but he's not you know he's not a bad guy um, whereas I've often seen him depicted as a bad guy and then Liu Bei who's kind of nominally an ally of yours but kind of not the game very cleverly kind of begins just as an alliance has collapsed and you can rebuild it if you want. And Liu Bei is almost like, you know, teacher's pet, you know, like I'm in this for China. And like all <laughs> all, all his like barks, you know, all his little audio <laughs> clips are like, oh, China must come together. And he's the very, he's, he's such a manifestation of like, you know, a correct Confucian kind of approach to this. Um, whereas Cao Cao is, is much more, complicated now Cao Cao is as in particular both those characters or both those people they lived um but you see what I'm doing now already I'm getting mixed up between figures and characters talk to talk to you about these two talk to you about these two figures like I said I'm having trouble even distinguishing between you know uh, fictional characters and historical figures so so I I mentioned but since I've never played Total War and it's really usually if it was something more in my wheelhouse I would have ponied up the money and downloaded the game but like i just know that tactical strategy more it, it is just not my thing um again the, the parts of the game that looked like crusader kings too was like very enjoyable i was like that looks really fun and then the battle <laughs> sequence started and i was just like oh no but one of the most interesting things so i talked to two friends of mine who both play the game um one of them has only sort of dabbled in it i think he only played like one full campaign the other one had spent quite a lot more time with it, and both of them really, really liked the game. But my the the latter person, um, he said that one of the most interesting things that he heard was that when the developers were talking to Western audiences and and Western you know the the Western media and stuff uh, about the game and the the split between the romance and the records, people in the West were like. I like what? Why are you doing that? We don't understand. <laughs> but when they talked to Chinese audiences, like Chinese journalists and stuff, were like, "I don't like. Why did you do that? What's the difference?" Which I think is really interesting because there's an to me that's an explicit acknowledgement of the overlap. Like, yes, we have the records of the Three Kingdoms, and we have 
Romance of the Three Kingdoms. But at this point, the two are so completely intertwined, at least in the Chinese, like, I don't want to say the Chinese mind, but like culturally, sure, they're sure. so, they're so intertwined that like what to Westerners looked really weird. They were looked really weird to Chinese audiences, but for a completely different reason, which I thought was really cool. Right. Is it kind of um, like, what? yeah, sorry, go on. Oh, no, I just thought it was I thought it was really interesting. And my friend said that he sort of felt like that was um, some kind of idea in terms of Western audiences, at least when the developers were talking to players and talking to journalists, having some sort of belief in the uh, quote unquote objective truth of history versus recognizing that this this is a really it's it's a constructed history the even the records of the three kingdoms were written later and then of course romance of the three kingdoms has just built on top of that um and that's morphed and changed over the centuries so like i don't know i just thought that was a really interesting point because i can't think of too many games where we get to go okay well what was the like sort of you know chinese reaction to this um, for a variety of reasons, and especially when it's something based in China. Right, and that that's fascinating, and that's, I mean, that's going to happen more and more, basically, as the, the Chinese market grows. But, yeah, like, the record, you know, is in the, in, the, in the game, it's interesting, within the history of the series, I've played a bunch of Total War games now, and this Total War game is in serious danger of becoming my favorite, and not just because I like Chinese history, but also because... Um, so the records mode, as it were, which is ostensibly based on this idea of a, a quote-unquote official historical record and, 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 and the book, you know, the, the record, the records of the Three Kingdoms, which is from the third century, um, you know, is much more like a kind of a, um, a an older style uh, Total War experience, which is, you know, you're going to send your armies out and there's slightly more emphasis placed on realism between different types of units and things like that. Whereas in the romance version, there's a few things that are happening. Um, your generals can engage in duels on the battlefield, which is new to this game. Um, you can make your uh, you can make your troops look larger and stuff. Not necessarily the cartoonish level, but you know there's a certain amount of kind of your breaking verisimilitude that the game kind of wants you to do. And it's interesting you mentioned Crusader Kings uh, there because it's another great game. And Crusader Kings is all about these personal connections. I mean, I love Crusader Kings of, you know, like I managed to marry a bishop into my family and this other bishop dies of syphilis and all these things. And Total War kind of connects individual people in a way that you're not really seeing. Total War Three Kingdoms does this in a way you're not seeing in previous um, games. And I just think it's really interesting because I think that by by choosing to adapt a romance of the Three Kingdoms, not just as like the topic and not just the story, but almost trying to tap into like the vibe if you know what I mean or like tap yeah, into like yeah, yeah. you know yeah. like I, I think they I think they really improved their game by doing that because they tapped into some cool new stuff that it might not have otherwise well and that's um yeah like I, again I do not play Total War so I have no basis for a comparison but um you know talking to um talking to one of my FC mates or guild mates from Final Fantasy 14 who's played this game and he was talking about sort of how this links to um, Warhammer in terms of just like overall um, not not aesthetic what is the his point was basically that they have these modes in Warhammer where you've got like legendary heroes or whatever and they're kind of super overpowered uh, and 
that was really good for some players and really not good for other players. But at least in the Three Kingdoms setting, I mean, kind of what he said to me was that, like, at least it makes sense, right? Like, right. of course, Saltzal is going to be, like, totally OP because it's Saltzal. Like, it's, and I, so that was actually really interesting. And I, you know, I wonder if that wasn't one reason the developers, like, selected something like this. I mean, and to me, it would be, didn't you say there is a Sengoku version? Yeah. In there's, fact, there's, there's two Shogun and Shogun okay. 2, yeah. I mean, it would be sort of interesting to look at the ways in which they did Three Kingdoms versus uh, the Sengoku era, which, of course, in and of itself is also a wellspring for all sorts of cultural interpretation. And um, even if you barely know who, I mean, I didn't have to do pre-modern Japanese history. I teach pre-modern Japanese history, but I didn't have to do it in grad school. So my understanding of, like, Nobunaga and the three great unifiers is tenuous at best but like i feel like i know nobunaga thanks to various pieces of culture so it would actually be really interesting to 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 kind of look at those differences um yeah and you know shogun so shogun 2 which came out i guess a few years ago now and i was was one of bob's first episodes here in history respond um was kind of a return to shogun which came much earlier it's just been a successful game for them uh, a game idea one day they'll go back because Sengoku period is such <laughs> ludicrously fertile ground for this yes. kind of strate- strategy game um, and, and there, there, are, there have been lots of Three Kingdoms strategy games before of course this is yes. a western adaptation versus a Chinese adaptation like does or just East Asian or just yeah. East Asian more broadly yeah just yeah no, that's a good yeah, right. point I mean I I this might not be a particularly fair question. Did you have any kind of reactions to this as like, I mean, there's Creative Assembly has people of all kinds of different backgrounds and everything else, but very broadly speaking, if I can just generalize for a sec, you know, it, you're looking at mostly a Western team or certainly kind of, I think a lot of the more senior people making design decisions and stuff are going to be from a Western background. They clearly love this topic and everything. Um, or at the very least, a multicultural background. Do you think that's producing a different product from what Japanese writers and filmmakers and actors are doing and Chinese and Korean and so on? Well, so there's a couple of things that stuck out to me um, just watching the gameplay. I have to say aesthetically in certain ways, I think they really nailed it. Um, what watching a lot of the, like the inner screen, the inner title, I don't even know what they're called, but like the loading screens uh-huh. and stuff. Right. And, um, what it actually reminded me of was, I have you ever seen the early 60s um animated films from china the the inkbrush animation oh i like a long time ago yeah yeah so like the cowherd's flute and um tadpoles look for mama which they're gorgeous i mean they're absolutely they're stunning it's they're you're watching a lie like a you're you're watching an inkbrush painting come to life um and there's like kind of an aspect of that i felt like when i was watching the Um, a lot of the in-between scenes, uh, transitioning and stuff. Some of it I felt was a little heavy-handed. I think earlier you mentioned the Liu Bei, like, for China thing. And, um, you know, I teach with Mulan, and my students, not the Disney film, but, you know, various versions of Mulan, because it's a story that my students are vaguely familiar with, right? Like 
some girl runs off to join the army and magically manages not to get discovered for 12 <laughs> years. Like, well done. But my students are always shocked that I've never seen the Disney version. And they're like, but, but you're a Chinese historian. And I'm like, but that's not Chinese history. Like, that's Disney. Like, that, that is something else, my friends. But watching your gameplay video, what I was reminded of was actually Kingdom Hearts 2, which I don't know if you've ever played. But that's literally my only real experience with Mulan. Because, of course, one of the worlds you go to is, like, China. Um, and Mulan, when she's doing her special attacks, is constantly going, for China! And I'm like, this is really <laughs> problematic on so many levels. Like, I don't know how I feel about this. And I was getting kind of the same vibes at points from listening to uh, listening to just the way that in which characters were speaking in these really kind of minor moments like that was coming up when you were like clicking on okay i'm gonna move this person right right to attack here um it's not like it was some major voiced cutscene. the other thing i noticed and i don't know if you noticed this but I, I, maybe it's me being sensitive i don't know but the main characters and their voice acting are just pretty standard I think British voice actors. I mean, it sounds like something you would find in Final Fantasy XIV. But the lesser characters actually have that weird sort of stereotypical, like Confucius say, kind of, there's a certain, the like the ways in which they're afraid, which I thought was really problematic, obviously, but also kind of interesting because they didn't do that with the main characters. And I think in the playthrough that you sent me, your main advisor was um, a woman. Mm -hmm. Like, she doesn't talk in that stereotypical way. Sal Sal doesn't. Liu Bei doesn't. Right. But these minor characters are, like, speaking in a sort of... Um, I don't even know quite how to describe it. But it, it's just that really stereotypical, like, if you were watching a bad dub of a, you know, Hong Kong gong fu movie. Like, it's exactly what you would expect, which... That I also thought was interesting. So I feel like they nailed certain aspects in kind of impressive ways. I think partially because they aren't... I mean, I don't know. I've also not played Dynasty Warriors ever. Um, although I desperately <laughs> want to play the Dynasty Warriors Mahjong game. I am I'm very... <laughs> I, I just, like, I, I want to play it. Uh, but... I mean, some of it is, I think, a bit of a, a, a fetishization, I suppose, but not in a bad way, um, right. aesthetically. It's such a tricky thing because it's funny you bring it up and I, I hadn't noticed it actually. And now that I think of it, it just reminds me of, you think of these types of games going back to the early Blizzard games, like the first Warcraft and stuff. And like one of the things about that game was, you know, you kept clicking on your peon till he told you to leave him alone. Oi, yo, oi. And they're, <laughs> and they're all like, all the all orcs are cockney apparently. And so like, I feel like it, uh, it's interesting you'd mentioned because it's almost like, it's such a completely different category of like voice uh, line than a main character or certainly the kind of advisor slash right. F1 help person. She's she 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 must have the largest um, voice part in the game, I think, or close to it. Um, and it's just interesting that at some point you go across a line and it's like, and now it's OK to just have, you know, what in the industry they call barks. You know what I mean? And then <laughs> sudden, suddenly they're not applying the same level 
um, of anything to those and those become it's in like kitsch is okay but then kitsch can be tricky if you're talking about cultural right. stuff you know yeah, yeah. and that's kind of what I, I thought that was actually quite interesting when I was listening to it because I will I, again I will say aesthetically like I, I think they nailed um they nailed they nailed some aspects of it I you know the most I suppose stereotypical quote-unquote thing like um this the skill tree or whatever I wasn't entirely sure what was <laughs> being the cherry blossoms but, yeah yeah like well, no, no 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 like i just meant like i like in, in terms of gameplay perspective like i obviously you were unlocking things and i got that but like i wasn't entirely sure exactly what was being unlocked yes i mean on the one hand that is totally of course it's china we have cherry blossoms we have trees but it was really pretty and it was really pretty not in a um not in a it, it was really pretty and very aesthetically like yes i could see this in some kind of chinese game made by chinese developers do you know what i mean like right it, it yes. didn't read to me as western people thinking about chinese ink painting and then making completely stereotypical cherry blossoms like it it worked it worked and i i i yeah i mean it, it looks actually quite beautiful um right and in, in many respects it's funny you say it that way actually because that's exactly what i was about to to bring up that i feel like when the game goes big like thematically you know and, and in in broad strokes it goes big in ways that i feel like yeah i've seen that happen in chinese and east asian produced stuff before <laughs> yeah like, leo leo bay is 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 good to the point of being almost sickening yep yep i've seen <laughs> that's a pretty that's a standard way to present that guy. Um, and for one of the things in this game that like a lot of the reviews are focusing on is like it's probably got the best diplomacy of a Total War game, certainly in a long time at least. And Total War games diplomacy is never all that, you know, complex anyway. Yeah. Um, but what I like about it is, and I've seen this in, in comments about the game, you know, you know, Guanxi, you know, which is which is relations. And if you ever spend time in certainly in a Chinese speaking community, um, other Westerners will be quick to tell you about Guanxi and the importance of Guanxi. And what I love yes. about what I love about the game is, you know, you're you're kind of interacting with your neighbor or a potential ally or whatever, and you're trying to agree to each other each other's stuff. And there's just a button that says, How can we make this work? And you click it and you just give him money and now he makes it work. And I love it because that's <laughs> that's how Guanxi actually works. Because that's how human beings actually interact, you know. It's like oh, I don't God. like you, and yeah. you're you're too big, and you know you married your sister to the other guy instead of my yeah. brother. I'm really annoyed about that. <laughs> well, what if I give you 400 gold? Well, then we can make it happen. That's right, totally fine. Right. Totally fine. And I just and I love that because I just feel like they kind of, um, you know, as you and I and many watching and listening will know. Um, you, the whole issue, you, you get into trouble where you're assigning these like magical characteristics, positive or negative to people that like you, you don't see yourself as having. And like nothing about this game or very little about this game strikes me as like, oh, wow, ooh, China. And, they, and, and maybe they're off the hook a wee bit because this topic is so, I, I guess, so romantic and so exaggerated already, um, you know, in, in, in the part of the world where the story comes from and where it's set. Like maybe may, maybe it's maybe everything has come together magically. I don't know. Maybe I'm not. Yeah, it kind of seems like that. Again, going back to my friend's observation about how you know the the, the reception 
of you know Chinese audiences versus Western audiences when they were talking about aspects of the game. Again, this this acknowledgement that like yeah, this shit is completely oh, language um, is completely <laughs> over the top, and 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 people recognize that it is this sort of highly romanticized and and like really at this point are we ever actually going to know what saltal was actually like i mean again we can sort of derive it I, I think i mentioned before we started recording that last night on twitter i was talking about my research subject which um again the the main play i study is set in the late song dynasty which just like this period is chaotic and there's a lot of stuff going on and You've got bad rulers and good rulers and, and whatever. Um, but a friend of mine who is actually a specialist in Ming literature said, well, you know, uh, Jocelyn All, who was the prime minister at the end of the Song Dynasty, really had it coming to him. And I, I said, I was like, well, yes, I know what you mean. So for those who don't know, Jocelyn All basically goes down as like one of the big baddies ever in Chinese history. Like... I've literally never read anything good about the dude. But I do wonder, and I was pondering since I was thinking about this game too, you know, how much of that is real. I'm not saying that he was a good dude, but like, <laughs> right, right. how do we even know at this point? Because it's become so intermingled and intermixed with the actual quote unquote, you know, dynastic history and then cultural interpretations. And so I think you're right. I think uh, the fact that this is such a fantastical, I don't know. I, I don't think we really have an equivalent. Um, I'm trying to think right. of a, like a Western history equivalent of this. Well, because audiences and, are, because are, are like medieval stuff and everything. And especially if you go back to the 1960s, like the immediate post-war period in, in the West, the classical set stuff, like in Rome, is so like serious, you know. Whereas, you know, there's I guess it's a few years old now. The movie Red Cliffs, which is this massive yes. long movie. I remember my dad and I watching it together. And Zhu Ge Liang, who's a really important character in the in the novel and advisor yes. and everything, he's played by God, this Japanese actor's name I can't remember now. And um, but he's basically kind of played as Gandalf a little bit, you know. Um, <laughs> And, and and everyone's cool with that. Like like so I, I've forgotten who they are now, but like the really famous generals, like the tiger generals, or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. And they're yeah. just they're complete they're like something out of a Marvel movie. Like they're so right. fun to watch and right. the audience is totally fine with that. You yeah. Know? Everyone's cool just, with it. Yeah, I, I really the other thing that I think is interesting and different, considering the fact that this is based on, again, one of the great classical vernacular novels of classical Chinese literature. Um, and this is one reason that I love studying Chinese literature is because that process of adaptation is always going on. Mm -hmm. So it's not like it was just people in the 20th century who were like, hey, we should adapt this novel. Like, to me, it's actually really different than the process of, say, I don't know, I mean, well, you're roughly the same age as me, but like Leonardo DiCaprio in uh, Romeo and Juliet, right? Like that, that was an adaptation, but that was like a very, but, but the process of adaptation and the ways in which this stuff changes is really quite different, I think, in China. And I don't say that to, to make it sound like some sort of exception, just that it's accepted that these things are going to bleed into all sorts of other areas and they're going to be tinkered with and they're going to be changed like i think i say at one point in my book like there are very few sacred cows in chinese dramatic tradition by which i mean like 
I can't imagine somebody like rewriting Shakespeare. I'm I'm sure it's happened, but like right. that's not how Shakespeare gets adapted. Like it gets adapted because you put it in a new setting or something. But no one's like, hey, the plot of Romeo and Juliet is like cool, but like I'm gonna rewrite a bunch of stuff. Right. Whereas Hamlet's gonna it, come into it, you know? It's like what? You right. Know? <laughs> right. Whereas in Chinese like theatrical and literary tradition, like this process of change and adaptation is always going on. I mean, that's how we got Romance of Three Kingdoms in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Like we don't even really know if the guy that we think wrote Romance of the Three Kingdoms actually wrote it. I mean, my students are fascinated when I tell them that there was an entire discipline in the 1950s and 60s called Redology, Hongshui, based on a study of Dream of the Red Chamber. Like, I, I don't know. Like, there's not an entire discipline called Anacaranaism. Like, like, it's just, it functions really different. Like, a lot of this cultural production functions really differently. So, I don't know. Like, maybe that's why, I think that does have something to do with why the the subject still has power, but also maybe why people feel okay to play with it, you know? Because people have been playing with the subject for centuries. Yeah. And, and and then, you know, and it's funny because you think you mentioned Shakespeare and I feel like, you know, now every few years, some guys get the idea they'll, they'll well, it's happening all the time. Productions of Shakespeare, like the way English was spoken at that time, for example. Right. And there's this right. quest for authenticity. And of course, <laughs> authenticity is a big thing in China as well, of course. But like, um, it, it's so interesting that we kind of go down that route. And so video games, especially for you know, you know, Maggie, you and I are not quite the vanguard generation of video game fans, as it were, but like, but our generation we're, we're, is... We're, we're closer than our students for the most yeah, part. Yeah, so. and, 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 and we kind of, and we will assume um, opposition to games as a medium uh, that isn't necessarily there for people younger than us. Now, whether that changes as they get older, I don't know. So video games kind of gets a bad rap from some sections for like being disruptive, right? No, you... You know, what are you doing? You couldn't possibly do whatever. But maybe it's just a really nice marriage into this literary tradition, you know, in China and other East Asian countries where like, oh, OK, that's just a, it's just another medium to keep doing something we've always been doing. Yes. Well, and that's actually a really interesting point, because um, so pretty much I mean, I and I always tell my students this because, of course, some of them get very excited and they're like, oh, you play video games. And I'm like, OK, I don't play shooters. I don't play this. I don't play that. Like, I mean, really, uh, I play super casual games on my iPad. Um, I play JRPGs and I play Final Fantasy 14, which funnily enough, it was actually a former student that got me into Final Fantasy 14, which is kind of sweet um, in retrospect. But you know, one of the really interesting things for me about being somebody that plays JRPGs is that people constantly are complaining, like, but the story was really trite. And don't get me wrong, I have my moments. Like, I usually tweet when I'm playing through an old game or playing a current game. Oh boy, uh, we've now hit the criticize organized religion portion of the, <laughs> the JRPG. But, but ultimately, like, the stories aren't supposed to be um, novel, you know? They, because for the most part, the stories that we tell and the books that we write uh, and the, the things that we go back to over and over and over again, those stories have 
all been told before. Um, they've always been told. I mean, we have thousands of years that we can go back and JRPGs are just taking that and putting it into, like you said, like a, a, just a different medium. Um, but it's telling stories and there's nothing wrong with tell. There's a reason that those stories and those archetypes have persisted as long mm -hmm. as they have. Right. There's a reason we have honest, brave, suspiciously handsome heroes and yes. you know the the great the, the great beauties of chinese history and all these you know the all these and and exactly. and, 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 they're, and they're epic in the true sense right and, and 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 total war games in my opinion are great when they're epic I, I i'm fascinated that um they went from like going back to rome and attila the hun and things like this they went off and did warhammer and just completely let their freak flag fly right and just went bananas <laughs> and then they come back to they come back to china but they but then they come back also to they embrace an epic way of telling the story, which that, is that really allows, cool. Yeah, yeah, which is I, yeah, really cool, and and just creates this now, fun experience, you know. I think it's really awesome. I mean, one of the things that constantly irks me as a Chinese historian, um, I, so you know, I'm I, again, I I play games, and my my students know that, and I I have like video game art and stuff in my office. I also have a Final Fantasy Ten logo that i cross-stitched many years ago which often sets my students at ease because like they literally walk into my office and it's like oh oh okay like I, she knows something about games and it's probably not going to shame me for it <laughs> um but one of the you know one of the funny things for me as a as a chinese historian is that i, I don't like a lot of popular culture like i'm teaching a class this fall in anime and manga and i don't actually particularly care for like i i, I mean anime is fine manga is fine like but it's not one of my things and my students are shocked they're like but why are you teaching a class if you don't like really like it and i'm like well you know here's the thing especially at my university the japanese historians and uh, you know people working in literature and other fields like have this huge opportunity because we have these students that are just like totally crazy for japan anything so they'll take any class with like japan in the title whereas i don't have students that are like i'm super crazy about romance of the three kingdoms you know and I really kind of wish I did have students that, like, again, not that I really know anything about Romance of the Three Kingdoms, but I could probably be like, you think Romance of the Three Kingdoms is cool? Let me introduce you <laughs> to late Ming Dynasty 20, you know, like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like supernatural <laughs> literature. We'll have some real fun. So it's cool. Like, I, I like the idea of this um, being explicitly... It's explicitly Three Kingdoms and Chinese Three Kingdoms and and Chi like I like that idea of that going to a Western audience because I do feel like most people who play games or consume you know a different kinds of media like anime or manga have probably been introduced to Three Kingdoms stuff they just don't know it right and this is explicit it it literally is like Total War three kingdoms like yes uh, so yes as opposed know, to you know total war oriental adventures or something which you know, t t no but like seriously 25 years ago that, they, they, they might have done that you know, yes. and now there's this, no, that's you know. very true <laughs> well listen maggie this has been great thanks so much for joining us really appreciate it 
Well, thank you. This has been delightful. And thanks, everybody, for watching. We hope you enjoyed it. Please consider visiting us at historyrespawn.com, which will also have links to our video episodes as well as podcast episodes. And if you like this work and would like to support it and help us to do more, please do consider visiting patreon.com slash historyrespawn to offer support. Thanks very much and goodbye.